Welcome to Percussion Masters, Life Behind the Drums. This is about lifetime stories, about motivation, art and decisions and choices people made to become the one they are today. Percussion Masters from all over the world. These are their stories. Welcome. I'm your host, Francesca Santangelo. This was recorded on July 16th, 2022. Today's guest is Gordon Stout, percussionist, composer and educator. While I was writing the introduction to the second episode about Gordon Stout, his piece, Wood That Sing, a wonderful marimba solo resonates in my mind. I think these words express exactly what makes Gordon special. His incredible ability to make the wood of the marimba sing. His love of music, sound and the instrument has been constant throughout his life and continues to be present in his performance, compositions, and teaching. So, but who is Gordon Stout for the few, hopefully few of you that doesn't know Gordon Stout? He was born in Kansas. Both parents were musicians and he was eight years old when he discovered the marimba. And the first time he heard the sound of this instrument, he said it was incredible. Later on, he studied at the Eastman School of Music, percussion with John Beck and composition with Swantner, Adler and Warren Benson. He was the first, one of the first of founding members of the Eastman Marimba Band in 1972. And in 1980, he began teaching percussion at the Ithaca College in Ithaca, New York. In 1988, he was co-concert with Bob Beggar of the 164-member Marimba Festival Orchestra. <laughs> so Gordon has published over 50 compositions and is still composing. And he said, my approach to playing is based on sound and not technique. So... His love to music seems to be like a lighthouse, always guiding the way in various situations. Listening to the music of him is telling you stories. Diving into his body of work, you discover the musical space of a skillful and diverse narrator. So it's a great pleasure and honor for me To have you here. Welcome again, Gordon. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate the, the kind words and I appreciate having the uh, opportunity to do my very first podcast. And it's a real honor to follow my teacher and mentor, John Beck. <laughs> so I feel honored by this. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your time and being here with, with me and with us. You know, the first question would be, you know, 
as I told, both parents were musicians and you wrote your first composition um, as a young boy. And um, if you ask me, for me was um, as a young girl, music was like um, a big adventure playground, you know. <laughs> so what did the music to you as a young boy? Um, well, I was a pianist before I was a marimbist. So uh, my parents being orchestral musicians, my father French horn, my mother flute, they wanted me to play an orchestral instrument. Uh, so I remember my father taking me to the School of Music at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, where I grew up at that point in my life, and most of my life. Uh, and he took me around to the various studios and introduced me to the teachers so that it would help me to decide what instrument I would play. And we went into the percussion studio with James Salmon, who was the, the very first percussion teacher at the University of Michigan and uh, a Hall of Fame member in Percussive Arts Society as well. And he was just such an engaging man in that he was very quiet, soft-spoken, but, but very gentle. And so I was drawn to his personality. And when he played the marimba and he started rolling on a bar, I just thought that was magic. And uh, that's what really drew me to the instrument, the wood that sings, as you mentioned before. I just love that sound. And I think I'm still amazed, although I haven't played marimba yet today, Every day when I play and I hear that sound, it's magic to me. And so I think everything uh, regarding my career as a marimbist and, uh, has been because of that experience I had the very first time I uh, saw the heard the instrument, and I just loved it. Uh, so my parents, as I said, being orchestral musicians, there was music in the house all the time. Uh, my father had a big private studio in one part room of the house. My mother had a private studio of flute students in another part of the house. My older brother uh, played French horn, and he might practice in the bedroom upstairs. And then I would practice marimba in the basement downstairs. And then my younger brother started violin. So people coming to the house waiting for their students to finished their lesson remarked that it was like a conservatory. Wow. <laughs> so there was music all the time. Um, and I, I really thank my, my parents for not forcing it on me, however. It was always available and I enjoyed it, uh, but they never said, you must be a musician. <laughs> for a while, I, I thought I wanted to be an architect. I was really fascinated by by drawing diagrams with rulers and making it look like, you know, uh, an architectural drawing. So I thought that was something I was really interested in. As a young boy, I was interested in all kinds of sports, too. So I studied springboard diving with an Olympic diver at the University of Michigan. So I did all kinds of things. I think I had a well-rounded childhood, but music kind of just won out in, in the long run. And it was really when I was a senior in high school, 
that I decided to be a percussion major and a piano minor because up until that point, piano was my major instrument. And I, to this day, secret be told, I wish I was a pianist. <laughs> I think the piano is the greatest instrument in the world. So I don't even own a piano right now, but my dream would be to have a grand piano and be able to play it every day. So later in high school, I switched and decided that piano was the minor and percussion was the major. And that took me to Eastman because my mother had been an Eastman graduate on flute. Okay, and that's where you studied with John Beck and Warren Benson composition, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Two big names, uh, right? Yeah. Yeah, going back just a little bit. So when I was practicing piano, my parents were often teaching in a different room. And so they weren't there to tell me not to, to fool around, to improvise. They weren't there to say, no, practice your lesson material. So I was always free to improvise. And actually, my mother would write down my compositions for me because I didn't know how to write music on paper. I was so young. So she would write them down and thereby encouraged me to develop my work as a composer as well as uh, a budding young musician. So I thank my mom for, for encouraging that aspect of what I was was doing. I never had a composition lesson before going to Eastman. And I studied my first year with Joseph Schwantner, um, who was there at his first year on the faculty as well. Mm -hmm. And then two years with Sam Adler, and then my last three years with Warren Benson, who really became my friend and, and mentor. Uh, Yeah, you told uh, you explained that in, in an article I've uh, I've read about uh, that Warren yeah. Benson was a big inspiration for you, right? Yeah, he's the reason the Mexican dances are what they are. Uh, it was just an etude for marimba for mm -hmm. me, the first Mexican dance, and he said, "No, no, just." It's it's got a Mexican flavor to it, so write another one and call them two Mexican dances because I had no idea what Mexican music was like. I had never been to Mexico. Uh, maybe I'd heard Herb Albert and the Tijuana Brass that has a marimba player in it. That was a popular group in America in the 60s. Uh, but I knew nothing, and so I thank Warren Benson for, for hearing something in that music that reminded him of his time in Mexico. Yeah, yeah and talking about Warren Benson, um, I was doing some researches, and um, I... Um, I found an article from um, the Music Educators Journal from April 1963, so by the National Association for Music Education. And he wrote, um, the article is named, The Creative Child um, Could Be Any Child. And um, I would like to um, read to quote one part of this article. Um, okay. He said, the teacher's resources are his intellect, personality, sensibilities, sensitivity, commitment, willingness to risk himself, and courage to expose himself. He can understand the nature of his own humanness. 
he may be able to understand the nature of the humanness of his students. The creative child could be any child. The teacher's responsibility may not be to separate those who are creative from those who are not, but rather to encourage all students to be creative, to enjoy the pursuit of creation, to believe in the possibility of achieving the impossible, to believe in themselves and to express themselves in their own ways to the limits of their own knowledge and abilities at any given time. Oh, that's really beautiful. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah, Warren um, was a wonderful man to study with. Uh, as a young college student, sometimes I would be nervous because I would say, oh, I've got my lesson with Warren tomorrow, and I hadn't written a note. You know, some things, you know, maybe I had too many concerts or maybe I was having an argument with my girlfriend and just didn't write any music. And I would show up kind of hanging, hanging my head low and he would open the door and say, come in. And I'd say, I'm so sorry, I haven't gotten anything written uh, for you this week. And he would say, that's okay, come on in. He would shut the door off and he would turn off the lights and just play some music for me. And we would just listen to music. I remember he was the one who introduced me to the music of Toro Takamitsu, which as a young uh, classical based musician in the in the 70s that was music that I'd never heard anything like um, so he was he was always willing to teach me no matter what my level of preparation was and he taught through very different ways and that was great and it kind of ties into my work with John Beck because I think he also reinforced a lot of those ideas uh, because John never told us you must play this way. You cannot play that way. You have to play this way. He wasn't that kind of teacher. He was the kind of teacher who developed what was in the student and just tried to develop their own personality and their own creativity and guide them in the direction of what seemed to work best for them. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, so that was really important to me also. Um, and I followed up on both what, what I learned from both men in my own teaching for 38 some years. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, um, that's a good um, moment to tell you that I've, um, I had the chance to uh, contact a former student of you talking about you know, your teachers and your inspirations, because I feel you've, you, you were blessed. I mean, having Warren Benson and John Beck, I feel like that. And I get the chance to, uh, to talk with a former student of you. Guess who? <laughs> oh, I don't know. There's so many of them, but I, know. <laughs> I, I would just say one thing. I think I was indeed blessed as a teacher in that I had a lot of students that really allowed me to help them develop and they did good things when they left, mm -hmm. right? So yeah. a teacher's success is based on what the students do after they go away from you. And if yeah. they keep doing good things, uh, then that makes you into a good teacher. So I've been very fortunate to have a lot of really wonderful students over the years. 
Yeah, so I, I couldn't guess. Uh, I couldn't guess. You have so Kevin many Bobo. great students. Kevin Bobo, how about that? Yes. <laughs> 100 score. <laughs> right. Kevin Bobo. I I got the chance to meet Kevin in 2009. I was in Spain. Uh, yeah. And okay. uh, later on in Italy, of course, uh, uh, my family invites uh, him. And um, and we he, he said beautiful things about you uh, so um you were talking about um this kind of inspiration you get from john and warren benson he said for example and always be encouraged from them uh the same thing told kevin kevin told me um you were always encouraging the students and you're a great human being um your humility and uh you know you're always the love of music and art um you had it like a compass and so what i could say is you tried to to get the chance to gave the chance and the space to the students to develop their own voice yeah, that's so important. Uh, and that is indeed the legacy uh, from John Beck, encouraging the student to develop their own voice. Uh, I've often said, why would you want to sound like me? Why would you want to play like me? There's only one me, fortunately. <laughs> but you need to be able to sound like yourself so that if if I mean, I know for a fact, if I was listening to recording and it was Kevin playing, I would know it by the way he sounds and by the way he plays the music. He has his own voice. And that's really what was so important to me as a teacher. It didn't matter whether they were a performance major, they were a music education major, they were a business major. It didn't matter to me. I taught them all exactly the same way, trying to develop their own individual voice and, and to develop the ability to play the instrument in a way that made sense for them. Yeah. So very, very few of my students ever played like me. Mm -hmm. that, that's, sorry. You know, I use what's called the Gordy grip, and we can talk about that later if you want. But most of my students over the years played Stevens technique. Mm -hmm. And then there was quite a few that played uh, Burton grip. And, and I taught some students from Asia over the years, and many of them played with traditional grip. So... My, I maybe only had two students that ever learned to play the, exactly the way I do with the Gordy grip. Okay. Yeah, th let's talk about this because, you know, um, talking about your students, I also have read that uh, Naoko Takata was the first uh, foreign students you had. And That's so, true. Yeah. So, and uh, so, yeah, let's talk about your grip. Um, okay, well, yeah, please. just about Nauko for a second, when she came to me, um, she played Stevens Technique. And she had actually broken a finger or two uh, in her hand playing with Stevens Technique because her hands were so very, very small that it just wasn't possible for her to play with Stevens Technique. And she was struggling and she was in pain and it just wasn't working. So the first thing I did is change her back to uh, change her to traditional grip. Mm -hmm. 
because it just didn't work for her to play with a different technique. So that's, I think, I'm very proud of the fact that, that I did that for Nauco and it worked out so, uh, so well. Now, what was I supposed to talk about? I forget. <laughs> Your grip. Oh, yes, Gordy grip. Yeah, my Gordy first, grip. My first teacher, Jenna Salmon, taught me this. Uh, he was a student of Claire Musser, played in the Marimba Symphony International, the King George Orchestra, and he played uh, uh, Musser grip. So he thought my hands weren't big enough and strong enough when he started me with four mallets, and he, he, what he did is it's a cross grip, like Burton grip with an extra finger in between. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that was just supposed to be something to train me to get started. Then as I got older, he was gonna pull the sticks out and there would be muscle grip. Mm-hmm. At some point, I guess he decided to just leave me alone with this Gordy grip. Uh, he saw I was doing well enough with it, I had an affinity for it, and he never made the change. And indeed, I didn't even know that that was his intention until years after I stopped studying with him and I met him in Chicago and said, why do I play this this grip that nobody in the world seems to play with? And that's what he told me. Later on, I found a couple players that that also played with it. Uh, Victor Feldman on, on Vibes played played with this technique. Um, uh, Tony Maselli, a Vibe player that's current uh, on the scene now, plays with this technique. And there are some people in France that play with the Gordy grip in the left hand and Burton grip in the right hand because uh, you can get the larger bass intervals a little easier with my technique than with Burton grip or traditional grip. So it was originally supposed to be just something to get started with that eventually would change, but it never did. <laughs> you know, that's that's really interesting for me because um, um, when I I think what I can, what I get is how important it is to watch, you know, to learn by watching. Uh, you get the chance to do this too, and I. Why I'm I'm telling you this because talking about the grip, my experience was like when I was studying with Marta because I get the chance to study in Stuttgart uh, with Marta Klimazara. I I'm play Steve. I play Stevens, and um, I know that by watching Marta playing, I just took, and she's playing traditional. I was like, oh, I think I get I can get. Um, from the traditional way of playing the movement of the arms. So I incorporated in my Stevens technique um, the movement of the arms. And I think that's one of the things you said, how important it is to to feel what it suits for you, right? Right. Your hands. So. Right. so having played with this Gordy grip all my life, you know, I haven't really thought about technique <laughs> For most of my life, because it's it's ingrained in me. It's the most natural thing in the world. When I was in college, I started. I played with four mallets all the time. If I had a little xylophone part, I held four mallets. If I had a bell part, I held held four bell mallets just to make sure that it was the most natural, comfortable thing in the world. Excuse me. So I did that for a number of years to the point where I almost forgot about playing with two mallets. 
which I love to do still to this day. I love playing with two mallets. I don't do as much, but I still love that. And actually, um, I was taught three mallets before four. So Mr. Salmon started me first with two mallets, mm -hmm. and then he started me with three mallets. So I had two in the left hand, so I could play an interval or something, uh, the accompaniment and a little melody in the right hand with three. Yeah. Right? Okay. And then eventually we went to four mallets. Oh, so so nowadays, nowadays people don't learn three mallets at all. No, but so always keeping in mind that, that it was like, for me, it sounds like, um, 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 how do you say it in English? It's always keeping in mind that music was the most important thing and the feeling. So it's not about technique. So how just about technique uh, that serves music. Um, yeah. It, it, yeah. It's, it's about music, right? So yes, um, totally. totally. Yeah. I, I grew up uh, listening to Vida Chenoweth's uh, mm -hmm. LP, which was the very first one available uh, in this country. And it had on it a piece by Alfred Fissinger called Sweet for Marimba. Mm -hmm. So I love this composition. I was too young to be able to even remotely be able to play it, but I was studying it and trying to play it and having all kinds of problems. So to solve those problems, I would write a composition. Cool. Yeah. And that would help me better prepare. So there's Elegy and Reverie. My very first two compositions were kind of study guides to trying to play the first and third movement of the Suite for Marimba by Fissinger. Mm -hmm. And so that has served me well if I had a technical problem in a piece that uh, already existed, I would try and extract that technique from the composition, develop some exercises on it, and then I would improvise on those exercises. And before you know it, I'd have an idea and write a composition. <laughs> great. <laughs> That's, That's great. kind of how I've taught myself to play all these years. Mm -hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. So, yeah, it was always to try and service the music. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, um, what I feel about your composition is um, that sometimes I can literally see a painting, a painting in front of me, or for example, I can hear a story. So what is your, or what are your sources of inspirations in art and composition? Uh, my source that, that inspires me to write a composition is the sound of the marimba. Uh, if I just walk up to the instrument and hit a bar and I go, wow, that's beautiful. And I think, okay, what, what sound would I like to hear next? And then I play another sound. and Or I play a chord first and then I play another chord. And I like the relationship of one chord to the next or one sound to the next. And that stimulates me then to, to further develop ideas compositionally. Um, I never know what the end result of a composition will be. It's mm -hmm. like this organic uh, stream of consciousness kind of 
thing for me where I just start and I deal with sounds and I work with them and I write them down and then I, I improvise some more, work with them, write it down, maybe go to the computer, put it in the computer. You know, I go back and forth between the marimba, paper and pencil and the computer. Uh, but it really starts just with the sound of the instrument, uh, as always. That's the thing that drives me to play the instrument is the sound is just so beautiful. That's that's so great. It's just like one can feel this love through the camera, you know, through Zoom, and that's so touching. And you know, I've I've noticed this, of course, um, in your work. Uh, that the sound is the main thing. And what does it need for you to get in contact with the marimba? It's, it's just something that I have to do. You know, um, I think I have a, a nicely varied life. <laughs> I have a house. I have a wife. Uh, we have a, one cat right now. Mm -hmm. We had four. Uh, and then in the last two years, the other three of them have passed on and we have one left. And he's sick right now, so mm. it's kind of a sad time right now in our house because the, the one cat we have left is is sick and not doing well. But I, I have a varied life. I love to spend time outside taking care of the yard. Uh, and occasionally I'll help my wife in the garden. She loves to garden. Mm -hmm. um, but I guess the two things that are always constant in my life are playing the marimba and writing music. I don't, I don't know what I would do if I could no longer do those two things. Well, I think if I couldn't play marimba, then I would just write music. <laughs> But if I couldn't write music, I don't know what I would, would do. It's just something about who I am. It's, it's a need that, that is there in my soul, if you will. I don't understand it, but I don't really need to understand it. I just do it. So uh, I tell young composition students this, um, you know, when was the last time you wrote a, a, you know, worked on a composition? They say, well, I did spend some time last week. And I said, well, you're not a composer. Hmm. I work at my composition every day. It's just something uh, I have to do. And if, if I'm between pieces and I'm maybe doing some other things and I haven't written for a few days, it kind of starts to, to, to weigh down on me and I feel I got to get back to it. So then I just go play the marimba until I get an idea. And there we go. Wow. <laughs> cool. That's, uh, that's great. I mean, it's, it's it, kind of encouraging, I think, um, me for example um to write <laughs> because i have a sort of um you know i i love uh playing music on a percussion instrument and yeah. and i love you know maybe you listen these sounds in your in your head and, and to write it down which i did but not so often um it's kind for me maybe with, with your words to get ins inspired to to write to 
inspire other people and maybe to uh, yeah to 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 do this like a gift you know it's like what you did for us it's a gift your music is a gift <laughs> so wow. yeah thank and you very much for that yeah i think the one of the pivotal changes in my career as a composer was wood that sings I think that piece really crystallized for me the importance of the wood that sings, the singing, lyrical, vocal concept of playing marimba. Uh, and uh, I think it was a successful piece. Um, I, I thought that there's so many beautiful pieces for solo guitar, where you have a very simple melody and a simple harmony that's combined through the alternation you know, of the two. Uh, music of Villa Lobos. Uh, Barrios is a composer whose music, I, I just adore his music. So there are many wonderful, wonderful uh, composers for guitar. Marcelino, uh, mm -hmm. for another one, you know. And so I wanted to write a piece that was kind of in that style. And I wanted to write a piece for two mallets because I hadn't written a work for two mallets in many years. So those were the things that kind of led to its creation. The desire to write a piece for two mallets in a style similar to some of the great works for solo guitar. And then Wood That, that Sings came, came along. And I think from that point on, I've been much more uh, concentrating on the, the singing aspect of the marimba. And um, I've written a number of crowls either just a whole piece that's in a chorale style or a section in a chorale. Mm -hmm. uh, and that, of course, makes things a little more difficult because you have four voices to sustain. Mm -hmm. And I now call it vibrating. I don't call it rolling because you're just vibrating the instrument in a way that everything blends together. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, wow, great. And that leads me to... The next next question, because you're talking about singing and breathe and the silence between the notes, I've, I've found really inspired your thoughts on your website. And uh, one of this is about virtuosity you wrote. Uh, and, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that you told, you know, anything is getting faster. And also the music is getting faster. Um, so do you have any good idea how to slow down or what do you do to calm down? Well, yeah, it's not always easy. Life is getting faster uh, in this day and age with technology and everything else. Uh, in addition to music getting faster, music getting more virtuosic. Um, I go back to my my roots, which is I don't think of marimba as being a percussion instrument. Okay, So I don't like to hit it. I like to just make it sing. And um, that helps you to slow down in and of itself, I think. If you're really concentrating on the sound and you're playing really fast, you're not hearing individual notes that have beauty in and of themselves. You're hearing only large swatches of sound uh, that 
have an effect, but you don't hear individual beauty of notes. So I guess thinking about those things helps me to, to slow down. Um, the other thing is that age helps. <laughs> I'm 68 years old now, and I just simply cannot play as fast as I used to when I was young. Um, the issue is I don't really care. <laughs> and I can't play so fast anymore because I don't like to play that fast. I like to play at a tempo where the instrument is able to sound and the notes are able to have beauty in of themselves. And then the challenge is making relationships between those those sounds to make larger sh shapes and phrases and things like that. I consider myself a classical composer in that I write themes I write transitions, I write development sections, all of that. I have a lot of influences because I'm aware of music. I'm aware of popular music. I'm aware of jazz. Jazz was a huge influence on me in, as a young college student because I'd never heard jazz till I went to college. <laughs> so those are some of the things I, I think about. And, you know, uh, I believe that it's important to breathe. Um, so often I'll do four or five very deep, slow breaths before I practice and before I start to compose because that just sort of calms the whole body and the whole mind down to a level at which I'm able to receive uh, the sounds in, in these kinds of contexts. Yeah. yeah, that's so constant. What what you are talking about is what what I've uh, I've said before, this love to music, love to sound, and the instrument is constant in all your musical career aspects. So uh, yeah. you you play it as a performance, as a teacher, as a composer, and um, you say, I know, as you sir, said also before, that you learn from everybody. And uh, my question would be. Are there any special events in your life in music where you got a strong epiphany that impacted your way of thinking about music and art? Yeah, yeah, there definitely are. Um, I think that Bob Becker has been incredibly important to me over the years. I've never taken a lesson with him, anything like that, but I remember as a freshman at Eastman getting to play with the upper class ensemble, all the, the juniors, seniors, grad students. So it was a special treat uh, for me to join that group for a performance of Hinastera's Cantata Americana. Mm -hmm. uh, and there was this guy next to me playing the xylophone part. I was playing the marimba part. And that was Bob Becker. And I kept getting lost and missing my entrances because I was just watching Bob and going, holy cow, who is this guy? I've never seen anything like that. And John Beck would have to say, stop and go, Gordon, you missed your entrance again. So right then, that experience taught me that I had a lot to learn. When I showed up uh, at Eastman, I was kind of a hot shot freshman. I thought I was pretty good. You know, and I was, because I had played the Creston previously, I'd played the Fessinger Suite, I'd done all these things. I was, you know, 
pretty convinced that I was a hot shot. And then I saw Bob play and I realized that I knew nothing. <laughs> and um, a few years later, when the Eastman composition department went to Toronto for a composer's symposium. You would have like McGill University, Toronto, Eastman, a number of schools would get together once a year and feature student compositions. And so I went there with Bob, who was playing one of his pieces called Homage to a Marine Band. And he had a big multiple percussion set up and I had a, a, a nexus like rack of instruments behind me that I would improvise on while Bob was playing this solo. And at the end, I was rolling on two tam-tams, gradually getting louder and louder to the climax, and they both fell over and made this incredible racket on the stage. And of course, I was I was pretty young at the time, and I thought, oh, this is awful. I've ruined the performance. Bob will never speak to me again. And uh, Bob came back to me, and he was just so thankful of how amazing it was that that happened, and that it couldn't have been better. And I'm going, well, wait a minute. I knocked him over. He said, yeah, he loved it. So that taught me something also. Uh, one last thing about that Toronto symposium, I saw a marimba player play, and it was like the hands were all just weird, like the worst technique in the world. You know, uh, how can they play when they're holding the sticks so poorly? And I talked to Bob about it, and he said, "No, no, Gordon, you missed the whole point. If you'd just been listening to this person, you would have heard that that she was making some really beautiful music." And I said. Oh, yeah, you're right. So Bob Becker was an incredible influence to me uh, early on in my my career, uh, and and that was lasting influences. I mean, there were there were other things like going to a concert at the Eastman Theater of, of Leontine Price with the Rochester Philharmonic, just totally blew my mind. I got also to hear the what may have been the last all Chopin concert that Arthur Rubinstein did at Eastman. Wow. I mean, those were amazing experiences. Um, hearing the first Joe Schwantner piece in the mountains rising nowhere, just, I had no idea that those, that world could exist. So there, there were a number of experiences that happened to me while I was at Eastman. Not only was I studying with John Beck and Warren Benson, but Bob Becker was there. They had this amazing concert series. Joe Schwatner was there. <coughs> so um, those were some of the really important experiences that formed who I am, I think. Does that answer your question? Of course, of course okay. it does. Yeah. And I have to think to my some of moments, they they were really important to me in music. I mean, I grew up also in a musical family, as you know, and yeah. I never forgot my uh, grandfather playing drums, you know, for example, it was, was great to listen to him and to watch him playing. Yeah. Asking a question, does your mother play an instrument? She's a percussionist. She is. I, see, yes. I, did, I did not know that. Yeah, she actually is. My mom, she is a flutist and a percussionist. Ah, oh, yeah. 
And my, my, my father is a piano player and a percussionist. And that was my, my sort of being blessed because my father was not teaching me percussion. He was teaching me music. Yeah, yeah. And my mother was singing, you know, so, and my yeah. brother was, we were always playing, you know, you know, at a dinner or lunch, playing with forks and, you know, was always yeah. music around us. Like you told uh, at the beginning that you always had music around. Yeah, another important influence to me in the 70s was Keiko Abe. Um, I, I was a pen pal with Keiko. We would write letters back and forth uh, for a few years. And I would send her my compositions, maybe send her some recordings, and she would send me back her, her LP sets. Mm. Uh, so that was really interesting to open up my ears to a world of marimba playing that, that was totally foreign. Uh, because the you know the mother of American marimba playing is Vida Chenoweth, mm. you know, and Keiko is not at all in that tradition. It's a very different kind of tradition, equally valuable, of course. But um, I will always remember when Keiko sent me the uh, the Tokyo Quintet. I think it was two or three LP set, and opening up, or maybe it was the essence of marimba. I think it was the essence of marimba set of of LPs, and I opened up in you know, the liner jacket, the liner notes, and there was this picture of this big marimba. It was the Yamaha sixty one hundred, and I I said no, wait, that's that's not right. And I counted, then there were five octaves, and I at that point I didn't know that a five octave marimba existed. But I learned about that from, from Keiko's recordings because I grew up playing a King George marimba, which is a four-octave marimba. And at Eastman, most of the marimbas were four-octave marimbas. And it was a big deal when we got the first Musser Low A marimba because it had three extra notes on the bottom. This was mind-blowing, <laughs> you know, at the time. Uh, so... Wow. Um, Akeko was an important influence, and, and I helped to bring her to this country for the first time, and and gave you know gave she gave a concert at the school where I was teaching, which was St. Mary's College in Maryland, south of Washington D.C., and I brought her to the local club, the bar where the jam, jazz band was playing, and she loved it. She was dancing around, listening, and I would sometimes play congas. With the jazz band, and I got Keiko to go up on stage and play conga with the St. Mary's College jazz band, and she had the time of her life. So that really taught me something too, just the sheer enjoyment of making music, because it was there. Mm -hmm. So Keiko was a really important person to me. I'm still very close friends with her, uh, you know, although we don't have communication on a regular basis anymore. When I last saw her in Switzerland, we had a lovely, lovely reunion of sorts. And it was, it was really a wonderful time. And what about some uh, concerts or events later on when you were teaching? So starting from the 1980 till 2019, right? So in this moment, in these years, 
what were the moments that that inspired you so much um in the early 70s we rediscovered the music of george hamilton green harry brewer red norvo um that was mainly through my contact with bob becker and bill Kahn, uh, who were starting nexus at that time mm -hmm. and so i got my teacher jim salmon to send me through the mail all his original copies so that I could photocopy them and send them back. And then we started the Eastman Murma Band. Mm -hmm. So playing that music, uh, ragtime music of George Green, Harry Brewer was kind of my specialty, mm -hmm. uh, was a big thing through really probably about 2000 and... Well, I did it for 30-some years. I would play ragtime all the time. That was a major influence because it was just fun, happy music that I just really enjoyed playing. And I had one band in particular of four of my students from Ithaca College that was just amazing. The best, best band I ever had. Uh, the opportunity to play with, although the Eastman Murba Band was no slouch of a group either. Um, so that that was really important. Um, I think the concert where I premiered Roger Reynolds' piece, Autumn Island, which was at a PASIC in Washington, D.C., I think the early 80s, I can't remember the exact date. That was a really important time for me also because I had never played a piece that was that complex and that difficult before. Hmm. So, I, yeah. No, go ahead. Please, please. Go, yeah. So, yeah, please go on. I'm sorry to interrupt. Well, I don't know what this, I lost my train of thought, but yes. the Reynolds was a very important piece uh, for, for me because it was part of that whole consortium commissioning grant mm -hmm. that Lee Stevens and Bill Mersch uh, and I formed with PAS. So, of course, uh, Bill contacted Jacob Druckmann, mm -hmm. who accepted, and we have reflections on the nature of water. Um, Lee contacted John Coriolano, who actually accepted the, uh, the commission. Uh, and I think Lee has some sketches of a marimba solo by John Coriolano, but he never finished the, the composition. I guess he got a, a, a commission to do an opera, and uh, that was for a heck of a lot more money than we were paying. So he eventually had to give the money back from Percussive Arts Society, and then Lee got Joe Schwantner to write Velocities. My first choice was Warren Benson. Uh, but Lee and Bill wouldn't accept that name. Mm. And eventually, a colleague of mine suggested Roger Reynolds, who I knew absolutely nothing about. And so I contacted him, and very quickly, he said yes. And ended up writing Autumn Island. And then when I got it, I said, holy cow, what have I gotten myself into? <laughs> uh, I, I had no idea how to begin learning it. So I found if I just separated things, so I learned the pitches, this note, the second note, the third note, with no rhythm whatsoever. Mm 
Mm. Just note, 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 note all over the instrument. And then I, I went to the snare drum and I tried to play the rhythms there. So I just worked on rhythm by itself and then gradually put the two together and was able to, to do it. But that was really hard work. Mm. Um, it was very rewarding work, although I can't say to this day that I really like the composition. It's an amazing work of art. Mm. And it's one that I would I'd love to have more people uh, to, to do. You know, Gordon, I think I can keep um, on and on talking with you because it's such a pleasure and really pleasant and I'm so curious to get more and more information from you so I would really love to meet once uh, in you know in presence maybe we can share uh, more moments together so I would so, be lovely I yeah. mean I, I so much enjoy uh, the other members of your family that I've had the opportunity to met to meet Antonio Uh, is just such a wonderful man, and Marie is like the sweetest lady in the world. Everybody would like to have a mother like her, right? She's yes. just absolutely uh, spectacular. Claudio, I spent time with those couple of summers, and he's an amazing person also. He's got a lot of organizational ability, I think, in addition to being a real virtuoso on the instruments. So now I, I know you, and <laughs> what an amazing family. Uh, and it's nice to know a little bit about the history of your family in the music and to learn that Marie uh, was a percussionist and flutist. Uh, and uh, and that your dad, I didn't know he he was a pianist first. So I kind of feel a kindred ship with Antonio because we both started on piano and then went to percussion. <laughs> That's great. Thank you very much. I will I will tell them this these words. They were really happy. So um, yeah, my last question to you is, what would be your advice to a percussionist in our time? You know in these days? Yeah. Um, well, there, there are many, many things, but I guess the important, the most important thing that I would recommend is to study music with other musicians. Don't study marimba only with marimba players. Don't study percussion only with percussionists. Some of my most valuable lessons as a musician and marimba player have been with violinists uh, and woodwind players, brass in particular. Um, when I wrote a piece for trumpet and marimba called Duo Dance Song, this would be 1976, I think. So a long time ago. And rehearsing it with my trumpet player, I kept saying, why do you, we, we keep having to stop for you to breathe. I didn't understand that that was so critical to uh, the natural flow and expression of music. So from woodwind players and brass players, I learned the value of breathing. Because as a percussionist, sometimes we forget about that. But it's probably one of the most important things, and it relates to something you mentioned earlier about silence being a part of the music. If you don't breathe, you have no silence in the music. And silence informs the sound that's on either side of it. So if you don't have silence, you, you really can't play music. 
uh, I learned a lot about um, technique from string players, um, how to transfer weight, mm. you know, through the mallet, the weight of the arm through the mallet into the instrument mm. uh, to draw the sand out, something that's critical to, to string playing. So I think that's what I would say is study with other people. If you play Bach on marimba, say if you play the, the violin sonatas on marimba, go play them for a violinist. If you play the cello suites, play them for a cellist. If you play keyboard works of Bach, play them for a keyboard person. Those are some of the most valuable lessons that you will learn because they will give you things that you would have never thought of being in the midst of your study of the marimba. Right? They don't know that. They just know what they're hearing. And so some of those comments that they make can be incredibly revealing and valuable. So I think that's the most important thing I would say is study music with other musicians. And two, just study music. Study the history of music, study the theory of music, uh, develop interests in all kinds of music, not just classical music. I think class classical music is still an incredibly valuable foundation that musicians to this day should pursue. But we, we, we've gone on from that uh, into all kinds of things. We have minimalistic music now, we have popular music, et cetera, et cetera, uh, jazz. Uh, so those are some of the most important things that I would recommend to a young player. That's so amazing. And I really thank you for that also, because I think um, that one part of um, music or art is the co-creativity. So um, to, for example, talking about my co-creativity with my husband, uh, he's a photographer or videographer, I've discovered how um, light, for example, how beautiful and important it is when you when you form a performance on the stage or um, seeing a video. So to tell stories through images gave me the possibility to be to um, get much more insights when I would like to tell stories through music. So uh, I think. Um, what you said, so being so open-minded and so uh, listening to all kinds of music, working with all kinds of musicians, and do not forget that there are other arts uh, that can inspire you. I think it's uh, one of the greatest things we can do as an artist. So thank you very much for these words. Yeah, yeah I'd like to say one last thing. The more no, I please, we don't have... To hurry. <laughs> okay. the, the more I keep studying music, mm -hmm. uh, and I study music every day when I practice and compose, the more I study music, the more I realize that I know absolutely nothing. <laughs> But you know what? That's really cool because that gives me the good reason the next day to start over again. And I think it was Pablo Casals, maybe, who said, why do you practice at 98? years old or something like that and he said something to the effect of well i'm starting to figure things out finally so yeah i don't know much but i keep working at it and i'm trying to figure out things even to this day in terms of the way i play and the music that i compose 
it's and that's fun. Right? Yeah, you're right. <laughs> that was I would just say to say the same. That's fun. <laughs> I'm so fortunate to be able to do that. Yeah. Uh, I'm retired now, and I was lucky to to retire debt free. And with my pension and Social Security, I'm certainly not wealthy, but I'm okay. And that means I can do this every single day. I'm so lucky to be in this situation. Um, and, and, and I will never forget how, how lucky I am to, to be in this situation to, to do these things on a daily basis. I believe you. I believe you. And for me, it's like the same. I'm so grateful to be a musician. And I think I think I would like to ask you one more question, if you okay. agree. Sure. Um, thank you very much about music and responsibility. Um, what do you think is our responsibility as artists in this world? Wow. Uh, that's a wonderful question. I'm not sure I have an answer for it, but I'll try. Um, because this world is not in a very good place, right? There are a lot of really bad things going on. There's wars going on. Um, pandemic. There's the pandemic going on. There's the, the next oil crisis is going to be with water who has water and who doesn't have water. That's going to become a major issue uh, in the next 20 years. It's already a major issue in, in many parts of, of the world. Uh, so there's so many bad things going on. Uh, this country, the United States, is a complete wreck right now uh, and, and not that far from another civil war. Mm. I hope not, but it, it could happen. So there's so many bad things going on. When I practice and when I compose music, I try to put all of that out of my mind and just create something that to me has beauty. And I think our responsibility as an artist is just to create, continue to create beautiful things, whatever that might be. It might be a, a written story, it might be a painting, it might be a, a photograph. Uh, as Ben does. Uh, it might be a painting, it, it might be a composition, it might be a performance. I think we just have to keep trying to, to create beauty and take that beauty out when we can and show it to other people so that they realize there can be, there still can be beauty and, and things in the world. Um, I guess that's what I would say offhand. It's an answer I could probably think for a week on it and get back to you, but I think just continuing to create beautiful things is the most important thing. Thank you very much for these words. I really appreciate this last um, words uh, in this podcast. I think it's a good inspiration and a motivation for the people they will listen to this and for me is for example the beauty as you told and uh to motivate people to inspire people also through this podcast percussion masters life behind the drum thank you very much gordon Stout, for the second episode to be with us and um yeah i'm really really grateful that i talked with you thank you thank you very much
I hope you like this episode and please check out our website percussionmasters.com. Stay tuned for more episodes. Thank <laughs> you.